Bibles, go ahead and open them up. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and somebody will be able to drop a Bible off. But Exodus 18, page 59, nice and early in the Bible. Page 59. It's been said that the Bible is shallow enough for a child to walk in, and yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in. The Bible is shallow enough for a child to walk in, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in. What does that mean? It means that the, the Word of God, the Bible, is simple enough that all you got to do is pick it up. And when you open God's Word, and anybody, no matter how old you are, if you're able to read and begin to comprehend the words on the page, you can get incredible insight about God, about the nature of God, about Jesus, about His sacrifice for us. It's shallow enough that even a child can open the pages and engage and get to know our God. And yet it's deep enough that an elephant can swim in, that an academic can give their entire life to understanding every word that's written in even just a, a single book, maybe the book of Exodus, and still say they feel like they've only scratched the surface by the end of their life. I like to say that the Bible, reading the Bible, is a bit like climbing a mountain. You know, when you climb a mountain, some people climb the mountain and it's a race to the top, so not that kind of climbing a mountain. The kind of climbing of a mountain where you want to explore everything about it. When you read God's Word, you want to turn over every rock, you want to explore every cave. You want to see the way the sun hits a certain passage from from different angles and at different times of the day and, and how it all fits together. And the longer you spend working and the longer you spend climbing that mountain and, and turning over every bit there is to know, the more you come to know God, the more He works His truth into you. Today we come to a passage in Exodus that has a few layers to it. From a simple level, it's easy enough for a child to walk in. It's a fairly straightforward story. And yet, there are layers. There's some depth here. In fact, there's so many layers that I can't get to all of them today. I wish I had much more time to dig into all of those layers. But it's one of those beautiful stories where we see that aspect of the Word of God, that anyone can understand it. But the longer you spend time, the more you dig into understanding what is this communicating, the more layers we see behind the text. And so for a short time together, I want to look at Exodus 18. I want to understand where, we're, where we are in this journey of Exodus. And I want to look at three different aspects of the gospel that we can pull out from Exodus chapter 18. So let me start by reading the first half to us. I'm going to go through verse 12. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. So pause. If you remember the story, when Moses went back to Egypt, if you remember, he was serving as a shepherd in Midian, and then God called him back to Egypt. When he went back to Egypt, he left his wife and children back with his father-in-law because it was a very dangerous mission he was going on. And so now Mount Moses' father-in-law comes with his wife and kids, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have, seen, I have been a sojourner in a foreign, foreign land. That word Gershom sounds like the Hebrew word for sojourner. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. 
And they asked each other of their welfare, and they went into the tent. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, simple enough, straightforward and enough narrative, but I want to show us three aspects. The first aspect is this, the beauty of God's multi-ethnic church. The beauty of God's multi-ethnic church. Now, I teach on the multi-ethnic church often, and there are many overt passages throughout Scripture. We, t- we studied Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, verse by verse over the last couple of years, and what we saw in that is that one of the major themes of the book of Ephesians is God's multi-ethnic church coming together. We go into parts of Acts that are very overtly teaching on God's multi-ethnic church. But one of the things I do like doing is also teaching on God's multi-ethnic church from passages that seem like they're more obscure and showing you that this is not just an idea that certain passages in certain, in certain parts talk about, but this is actually kind of woven into the entire fabric of God's redemptive story that he's been writing. Let's remember where we were and where we've been. At this point in the Exodus story, Moses and the people of God have escaped from slavery. Now, you might recall the Jews are being held in slavery in Egypt under a terrible taskmaster, a leader of Egypt who was, went by the title Pharaoh. And they've escaped from Egypt. If you remember the story, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, systematically attacked all the gods of Egypt. He attacked the God of the Nile. He attacked the God of the frogs. He even attacked the God over, they believe Pharaoh was God, like a God. And, and Yahweh took Pharaoh's firstborn son, showing that Pharaoh's not God, but Yahweh is God. And then they're in the wilderness. And in the last few chapters, they've begun to have some hard times in the wilderness. They've escaped slavery, Moses and all these people. But they begin grumbling. We remember that story. In Exodus chapter 17, they have their first fight, their first military campaign where they fight the Amalekites. And it's a wonderful story where God's people come together and there's a victory. But here we find them wandering in the wilderness. And then Jethro arrives. Now, when we meet Jethro in chapter 18, we might remember we've already met him earlier on. As we study the book of Exodus, when Moses ran away from Egypt, he ran to Midian and married a woman from Midian whose father was Jethro. And we met Jethro earlier on. In fact, for 40 years before Moses went back to Egypt, he was a shepherd underneath Jethro. He worked for Jethro. These two men know each other well. As Jethro approaches Moses, we're given two descriptions of him. Let me read to you again, chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. Two things. He's a priest of Midian. He's Moses' father-in-law. Now, let's start with the priest of Midian part. Do you remember where Midian was? I put a map up a few sermons ago. Where in modern day was Midian? Anyone remember? Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Midian is modern-day Saudi Arabia. Egypt is still Egypt, so if you, same place on the map, okay? So if you can imagine Saudi Arabia down in the southeast of where Egypt is. 
uh, Jethro comes from Midian. And after he fled into the wilderness, he then married this Midianite, uh, married into this Midianite family. When we get to know Jethro, we understand that he was a priest of Midian. Now, what does that mean? People are divided on this. Was he a pagan priest? You know, someone who was worshiping a false god who was living in Saudi Arabia. Someone perhaps like an imam of a mosque. Someone who did not know Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but was worshiping a false god. Is that who he was? Well, there's some reason to believe that. In chapter 18, verse 11, it seems like there might be a conversion in Jethro. Read this text. It says, now, says Jethro, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. That almost makes it seem, says some commentators, like Jethro was a pagan God worshiper, and that this was the moment where he heard what God had done in delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, and, and now he was trusting in the God of Yahweh, and there's great conversion that takes place. Other people say, well, you know, there seems to be evidence in the chapter, and as we understand Jethro, that, that actually maybe he was worshiping the one true God. There, there's actually another man in Scripture that is very similar to Jethro. His name is Melchizedek. We meet Melchizedek, if you're a Bible student, you might remember you meet Melchizedek back in the book of Genesis, one book before Exodus. And when we meet Melchizedek, we're told he's a priest of Salem. That would one day become Jerusalem, Salem. He was this priest, but we're told Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. He was a worshiper of the one true God. Melchizedek and Jethro have a lot in common. Both are priests of these foreign lands. Both encounter a man of God after a major battle. It was when Abraham had just defeated Chedorlaomer, and now Moses has just defeated the Amalekites. And up comes Jethro, just like Melchizedek. Both say the exact same words to the prophet of God, verbatim. There's the exact, I didn't write it down, but it's the exact same sentence. It's something like, blessed be your Lord, or something like that. They both repeat the exact same phrase. And then... Both of them share a meal with the prophet of God. We are being instructed by the writer of chapter 18 to make a connection between Jethro and Melchizedek. And what we know about Melchizedek is he was worshiping the one true God. Now, here's what's interesting. Not only, wherever we fall on that spectrum, I'm giving you a layer behind this to send you into some study on your own. Wherever we fall on what his origin was, by the end of chapter 18, Jethro is worshiping Yahweh. He's making sacrifices, and he's a believer. But we're also told he was Moses' father-in-law. Now, how, did you hear when I was reading that passage to you how many times I said the word father-in-law? Twelve times the writer of chapter 18 refers to Jethro as Moses' father-in-law. Now, as good Bible students, when you read your Bible and you see some word or phrase coming up multiple times in a short section, you know the writer is trying to get your attention and draw it close towards that detail. Why is this important? Well, it's important because Moses was from Midian, which made him an interesting figure for Moses' father-in-law. Moses, the leader of the Old Covenant, was a very multi-ethnic man. Now, we've seen this already. Let me go through the details with you. He was born Jewish, Jewish ethnically, right? But then he was raised culturally Egyptian. He was raised in Pharaoh's house and was brought up and looked, spoke, thought Egyptian in many ways. Then, when he was a young man, he ended up killing an Egyptian officer because he was trying to identify with his roots as a Jewish young man. But what he found was that the Jewish people didn't accept him. And the Egyptian people were then mad at him for killing an Egyptian officer, and so he fled. 
And then he married into a Midianite, modern-day Saudi Arabia family. This is quite the multi-ethnic man. In fact, later on in the book of Exodus, Moses marries another woman. And I believe this is after his first wife, Zipporah, dies. I think this is a separate woman. He marries another woman. You know where she's from? Cush. He marries a Cushite. You know where Cush is? It's modern-day Ethiopia in Sudan. He married an African woman. Now, how do you think God's people handled Moses marrying a woman from Africa? Let me read it to you. Numbers, chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Seems like my interpretation of this, there was some racism (laughs) bubbling up. Maybe they didn't even have that word or acknowledgement of what was happening, but they weren't happy that he married a woman from Ethiopia. And yet, the founder of the entire Levitical law, the prophet that God used, has this incredible multi-ethnic story of his family. When Jethro arrives on the scene, cultural perspective arrives on the scene, and Jethro speaks wisely into Moses and the people of God's life. The church must always be acknowledging that each of us bring one particular ethnic and cultural lens into our reading of Scripture. None of us comes to this unbiased. I'm white, I come from the Midwest, and I bring a white Midwestern lens to how I read this. And there are things I don't even know that I can't see until my Chinese brothers and sisters who come with a Chinese perspective of their upbringing and their cultural heritage look at this text and study the Word of God and they begin to see things that I I never would have thought of seeing. Or my African-American brothers and sisters look at it, particularly when we talk about the Exodus. This was MLK's book. This was the book he used during the Civil Rights Movement. Why? Because it's about coming out of slavery into freedom. You talk about cultural perspective. I need my black brothers and sisters to school me on the book of Exodus and show me things that I just don't even understand emotionally and culturally about this book. There's a wonderful story about a man, Native American man, who wrote a book on the concept of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word, which means wholeness, fullness. You might mean peace in some ways. People used it as a greeting. And a Native American man who, the Native Americans have a long history of kind of oneness with the land. He wrote a fascinating book on a culture, a Native American cultural perspective on the concept of shalom in scripture, talking about wholeness with the land. I, I, would never, I never would have even gone there. I would have been blind to that. But it's excellent academic theological work. But he needed a Native American perspective on the same text as me to make this complete. Here in this church, we say regularly, we're a multi-ethnic church, and we work hard to make this room look like what it looks like, but what's important is not so much just that we have a number of different people in this room coming from very different cultural perspectives, different colors in the room. We celebrate that and we love that, but that's not the meaning of a multi-ethnic church. The meaning of the multi-ethnic church is that each of our different cultures and heritages shine light on the fullness of the gospel narrative and the word of God, and we're dependent on each other the way Moses was dependent on this Saudi Arabian man to expose truth to him. See, we need each other. 
without the fullness of the nations, without the fullness of cultural background saying, don't just adapt to one set of culture, but bring your culture and feed that into here because we're made stronger and more like Christ when we do that. That's the multi-ethnic church. And Moses is experiencing that in Exodus chapter 18. Number two, second aspect. We learn a number of critical lessons in biblical leadership. Biblical leadership out of this chapter. This is kind of the leadership chapter in the Bible, to be honest with you. And I think out of this text, I can pull out five lessons in leadership. I'm going to give you the top two because we got some other stuff to cover today. But I'm going to give you two. Let's actually see what's happening here. Moses is a new young leader, right? He was a shepherd before this. He was raised in Egyptian courts, but spent 40 years as a shepherd, individual guy. Shepherds aren't working with a team. He's just watching some sheep in the wilderness. He doesn't know about leadership. He's never governed and led people and judged people. He's this young guy that's thrust into leadership over a whole group of people, and they're tough people. Honestly, they're grumbling, they're complaining. They're trying to tell Moses he, they wished he would have just left him in Egypt. And how is he leading? And then Jethro comes in, sees his leadership, and gives him some advice. Let me read the passage to you. Verses 13 through the end. The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from the morning until the evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourself out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it all alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people Men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Get this. So Moses listened. How about that? So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel, made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Now, I'm going to pull out two principles on Christian leadership here that are very important. Every one of us is a leader in some regard. Whether you're a pastor, like me, or maybe you're a small group leader. Maybe you're a leader in your workplace. Maybe you're a leader in your home. You're a husband and a father. Maybe you're a leader of people, and just people come around you, and you use your home to lead others and to guide others and to guard the truth. Every one of us needs to know leadership and what God has instructed for us in leadership. The first principle is this. Leaders must set appropriate boundaries. 
Now, before you think this is just a practical issue, this is deeply spiritual, and I want to show you why. But out of this text, we get leaders must set appropriate boundaries. We heard in Exodus chapter 18, verse 18. Let me read it again. Uh, you and the people, says Jethro, will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now, again, this looks practical, but it's highly spiritual. In a city like Chicago, every person is tempted to do what every other non-Christian in the city is doing. We work tirelessly. We pursue a career. We work 70, 80, 80 plus hour weeks. We work hard. And the temptation is to do just what everyone else is doing. The harder we work, the better chance we have at a promotion. And because we're finding our value in what we achieve in this life, we chase it just like everyone else does. And we set no boundaries. And the reality is, is that we wear ourselves out just like Jethro said Moses would. And you know who suffers? Everyone around you, particularly your church. I don't know if you thought about that. When you refuse to set boundaries on your life and guard your time, we all suffer. Because while you're out building a name for yourself and getting the promotion that you've been longing for, the people of God who are dependent on the gifts that God's given you to be poured out in abundance in time and commitment to this community get robbed of your gifts. You ever think about that? If you've got an addiction to work and you can't put a boundary on your life that you're robbing your church of the gifts that you have? Now, why is this a spiritual issue? Look, how many of you go home... <clears throat> And you can't turn this off. I've talked about this from this pulpit. Right? The email comes in. Work's done. You're with your kids. But you're, st you're just doing this. Are they getting you? No. No one's getting you. Your phone is getting you. When you, we can't place boundaries on our life, what we're saying to the world is we're just like you. We find our value in what we achieve in this life. And because achievement requires all of me, all my time, all the time, keep going constantly, make sure I respond to every email within two hours, make sure I respond to every text within an hour, because we're buying that and finding our value in that, we chase it just like everybody else. And this is a spiritual issue because Christians know our value doesn't come from what we achieve. Our value comes from what Jesus has achieved in our behalf. Jesus accomplished it all. He's the king. Jesus, God in the flesh, looks down on us and says, you're valuable because I gave you value. You're valuable because I've adopted you as a son and a daughter, and no more value. Whether you get 10 promotions or you lose your job, you got the same value. You're loved by God. And the Christians live in that place. We rejoice in that place. We rest in that place. And what that means for the Christian is we can stop chasing God forbid a Christian never knows what it's like to set healthy boundaries and enjoy solitude. With God, busy, 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 chase promotion, chase promotion, chase promotion. All the while, Jesus is sitting there saying, you want to spend some time with me? No. We're so busy. This is a spiritual issue. We don't find our value on what we achieve. We find our value on what Jesus has achieved for us, period. It's who we are. He identifies us. We've got to set boundaries. If you're in this room and you've never set boundaries on your time, I get it. There are, there are weeks where you've got to put in a long week. I get it. Seasons come, seasons go. But if the consistent habit of your life is there are no boundaries and you are a workaholic, you need Exodus 18. You need Jethro's advice. You will wear yourself out and you'll take everyone down with you. Number two, receive feedback humbly 
and actually change. Get this. Receive feedback humbly and actually change. Now, this principle is so vital, and if we're honest with ourselves, we are so bad at it. Here's Moses. Now, if you were Moses, and here comes this guy. You've just delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt. You're the man. Everyone's coming to you. You've got, you're, you're guarding everything. You're giving spiritual advice. You, you're the guy. And this outsider who's been with you on none of the journey, he hasn't seen anything. He doesn't even know about the grumbling yet or the big battle. You know, he, he, he doesn't even know anything. He comes in, <clears throat> he looks at you on the first day and says, oh, that's not good. You shouldn't be doing it that way. What would you say? You, you'd be like, yeah, right. You think I haven't thought of everything you're telling me right now? You think you, you're going to come in here and you're going to organize us? Please. You, you know these people? They're a bunch of grumblers. You try organizing them. You think, here's this, ready? This week, I got critical feedback. I, I got critical feedback in my job. Sat, sat down with me, gave me some good critical feedback. You know what I was doing the whole time? Dismissing it. I was dismissing it. In the back of my mind, I'm sitting there going, ah, that's not how that happened. You don't know the whole story. You, you just don't know it. And then you know what I did? I walked out of the room and I said, wait, what passage am I preaching this week? <laughs> oh, Exodus 18, the one where we learn how to get feedback and actually apply it. Oh, we hate getting feedback. We hate it. You know why? Because here's what feedback is. Feedback is putting aside what you want your image of yourself to be and actually seeing who you really are through another brother and sister in Christ. And then hearing truth about yourself, recognizing your weakness, and then saying, God's called me to more than that. See, see, getting feedback, if you log on to TED Talks, there's a million TED Talks about getting feedback. It's the new pop thing, but it's a Christian thing. They stole it from the Bible. Because Christians understand feedback is rooted in, in our nature, in who we are. This is who we are. Jethro comes to Moses, and in verse 24, it says, Moses listened. He listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that his father-in-law told him to do. He listened and applied. As Christians, this is what we do. We, we're looking for feedback. Why? Because the nature of ourselves is such that we know we are weak. This is, look, here's Christianity. You ready for this? Christianity starts with the, this first principle. God is great. He is worthy of everything. There is a God who knows you, knows everything about you. He's worthy of every bit of your praise, bit of your time, and he's got a wonderful plan for your life. If you would submit to him, make him your king, that's Yahweh. It's this God right here. He's got you. And you know what the next principle is? We are weak and incapable and incompetent on our own. If you leave us to ourselves, we're totally depraved, and we will not find God on our own. We're too broken. Our mind is broken. Our will is broken. Our heart is broken. And so it should come to no surprise to a Christian when someone gives us critical feedback. That's just par for the course. When we accept Jesus, here's what happens. Jesus dies on the cross on, on our behalf, literally satisfying the wrath of God. His blood shed on our behalf because there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And so he forgives us, broken sinners like us who are an affront to the nature of God, who are unholy and cannot be in the presence of God. Jesus forgives us our sin and applies his holiness to us. And then he begins a new life. We sang that, up from the ashes. You know what that means? When we, that's literary, that's trying to put melody and, and poetry to this idea of we die. 
to this old self that we were. And God begins this new life, this new journey of becoming Christ-like. We call that sanctification in the church. But in the journey of sanctification, no one says we're there yet. That's glorification. That happens when you rise on the other side of the grave. In these short years, while we're pilgrims and sojourners in this life, we're becoming more like Christ. The Holy Spirit does that. And he uses other people in our life. He wants to sharpen you. He wants to shape you. And if you don't have the courage to hear the weaknesses you have, that's a spiritual issue. Because what you're saying is you think you're better than you are. But every one of us starts with the posture of I'm worse than I think I am, but by the grace of God, Jesus is doing something remarkable in me. We start with that foundation. Now, how do you do this? I think every Christian needs to have Christians in their life that they can go to and say, give me some feedback. Maybe it's your husband or your wife. Maybe it's a sister or a brother. Maybe it's a, someone you're sitting next to right now. Someone that knows you. Because here's the deal. People that know you already have a list of things ready to go. <laughs> if you go to them and say, can you give me some critical feedback? I really want to change. They're like, I got, I got like 10 of them. Which one, <laughs> which one you want? And you can say, go easy. Give me one. Give me one. I'll take one at a time, please. Right? But here's the deal. When you ask for feedback, because we want to glorify God, this is about Jesus. Jesus died for us. Jesus is transforming us. And so we want to be like Jesus. So we get feedback for Jesus' sake. Ready? Then you create a space that's safe to get feedback. See, this is where we go wrong. I, this has happened to me. Someone says, hey, can you give me feedback? And they stand back like this. And I'm looking at their face going... Now, if I tell you that what you said really hurt my feelings last week, I'm pretty sure you're going to be really angry. <laughs> and so I don't say it. We need to create these safe spaces as Christians that acknowledge our total depravity, acknowledge the journey of sanctification, where someone who loves us deeply can be honest with us and say, I see this weakness in you. And then we listen, we bring it before the throne of grace, we pray over it, and we allow God to change us, and to sanctify us. Now, here's the deal. Some of you are in this room right now, and you're hoping the person next to you is hearing everything I'm saying. You're saying, oh man, this is going to be a good evening. Woo! I'm finally going to get it all out. I have been saving it, and Pastor just brought it. Here we go. I'm going to get it off my chest. I hope he heard it all. If that's you, you're the one who needs the feedback. And the, did the baby just say amen? That was amazing. If that's you, you're the one who needs the feedback. And what you need to do is you need to make a safe space for that person that you think needs the feedback to come to you and give you honest feedback because they got stuff they're lining up to tell you. It's about Jesus. He died that we might experience this journey of new life. We start with that foundation. There's leadership principles. Here's the third and final point. The third aspect of this is we get a picture of God's people caring for one another. This is so important. A picture of God's people caring for one another. Hidden in this text is this incredible moment where God's people begin to behave like a real covenant community. Moses is burdened. He's, he's worn out. He's trying to lead and shepherd all these people, and he's just pooped. And Jethro comes along and says, here's what you've got to do. Assign some people. So Moses goes, look, look, guys, here's what I need. I need some help. Okay, I need help. You, 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 and you. Come over here. 
Let's have this meeting. I need us to all pour our gifts and build this covenant community because God's doing something amazing. And it's not about me as Moses. It's not me, Moses. It's us. This is the covenant community. God's in us. He's working through us. We all need to pour our gifts in this healthy dynamic where we're dependent on each other. And then they do it. He, he assigns roles and responsibilities. Then they step forward and they begin getting knit together and people's needs are being cared for. Notice it's judgment issues. It's all the broken, messy, legal stuff of life. It's, man, he, you know, he, he drove his car on my lawn. Well, okay, bring that, let's talk about that. It's, man, they're, they're not behaving appropriately. They're, they're hurting me. Okay, we got people who can care for you over here. And the body comes together as a covenant community and cares for one another. The church is a covenant community that's dependent on each member of it, loving Jesus, filled by the Holy Spirit, to pour their gifts, their time, and their talents into this family. We're dependent on each other. And when we fail to do that, we rob the church of what God's designed it for. This week, I sent an email out to the members of our church. If you're a member, you know the email I sent you. A few months ago, I stood up here and shared with you that Shalane Walker, a member at our church, had given birth to her child very prematurely, and we prayed in this service. He was born at 22 weeks developed. You might remember that service. 22 weeks developed. He was a medical miracle, and for about three months, about 10 weeks, he was doing great. We were praying for him. Many of you were caring for Shalane very well. This last week and a half, he took a health turn for the worse over at Northwestern, and he passed away, I, I think it was Tuesday this week, Tuesday or Wednesday, on Tuesday he passed away. Between our 9 and 11 o'clock service, we had a, a whole prayer gathering for Shalane, where the body just came around, we filled an entire room, we just laid our hands on her, prayed for that precious woman and for her daughter Layla, and for their family and what they're going through. This coming up Saturday, we're going to have a memorial service, and I'm going to invite you guys to come join us as we come together around Shalane and care for her well. But I want to share something with you. In that journey, those 10 weeks, many of you were caring for Shalane. It was not easy. This little guy, I, I, I rubbed his back. He was less than a pound. A pound. Imagine just that little baby just laying there. And... Over the last few months, you've cared for her so well. Shalane wrote me this letter, and I want to read most of it to you because I want you to see what we're reading in Exodus 18 being put in practice by you. Shalane writes this. Here's a short list of people who have cared for me over the last few months. The Ozingas. She visited me in the hospital when Shaden was born. Their family sent food. Paul drove all the way to Oak Park to drop it off, and she sends me texts every few days just to check on me and see how I am. She also offered to watch Layla anytime I needed. Bianca met, met with me and ministered to me. She comes to the hospital regularly to see her aunt and makes time to stop by and visit Shaden and I when she's here. She prays for me. She checks in on me regularly and is getting together with me this week since Layla will be gone to make sure I don't sit in the house alone. Sarah and Jimmy Lee worked to find replacements for me in the children's ministry this season. And then their family sent food when Shaden arrived, even though Mackenzie was only four weeks old. That's their own child they just had. Allison Byrne, amazing small group leader, came to visit me and Shaden in the hospital, met with me in Oak Park after a long day of work, multiple times just to pray with me and talk with me, sends texts regularly just to see how I am. 
Krista Rowe visited me in the hospital the day after Shaden was born, visited me again at the hospital on Mother's Day just to see how I was doing, invited me to mom's group on Wednesdays, offered her extra bed in case I needed a place to crash in between hospital visits and going home. Keisha Farley, who gave me her preemie-sized boy clothes from her son. Julia Lee, her and Steve sent food the week my family was here, and then she recently made time to meet and pray with me one-on-one, sharing some of the things God has laid on her heart. Alana came to visit me and Shaden in the hospital with really thoughtful gifts and fellowship. Christabel sent Chipotle gift cards to us and sends me encouraging articles of other preemie stories. Jennifer Sadler watched my daughter's Mother's Day weekends, watched my daughter Mother's Day weekend so I could have a night alone, brought food multiple times the first few weeks. Jenny Wasserman offered to help plan and throw a baby shower for me and continue to pray for me regularly. Sarah Chennery organized a meal train for me, cooked herself and offered a crib, a pack and play, and other things that I haven't yet had a chance to buy, hosting Brandon and I for dinner and cooking as well. Kenson, his amazing sermon last week on going through trials and difficulties, which was just so timely. The Alpha class, I ended up being truly blessed by it, and I'm so thankful for Park for offering it and the connections I made to the Ozingas and to others. Mom's group at Mary Potter's house, a great group of women who welcomed me with open arms and have been praying for me this whole time, even some of them that I don't know. Too many to count. So many people, each and every Sunday, who make a point to say hello and ask about Shaden every Sunday and ask how they can help and be a blessing. That's it. That's it. This is a hard week. This is a hard week. But being part of a covenant family, a multi-ethnic covenant family, where you care like that, where the Holy Spirit fills you like that, that's crazy. The world does not have that. And when the world catches that, when South Loop catches that, and they see that, even just in little bits, they scratch their heads and they say, what is that? This is what the church is. We are filled by the Holy Spirit and we bring our giftings, we bring the love of Jesus, and we pour it like heaven on people. Like heaven. We just, we just saturate people in love. And when there's brokenness, and when there's pain, and when there's death, we just smother people in love. And we don't stop. You know why? Because it's what Jesus has done for us. In the midst of when we couldn't help ourselves and we were helpless, he smothered us in love. He died for us. He sacrificed everything, and then he equips us to do the same. Well done, church. This is the covenant family of God coming together in a local church, equipped and caring for one another. I couldn't be more proud to be a part of this family. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I'm so grateful for this family. Thank you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are making beautiful something that is so messy, a group of people like us, sinners, coming together, trying to do life together. Thank you that you lead us. Thank you for sweet Shalane and the life of Shaden. God, we, in times like this, don't know what to pray, but your spirit says that when we don't know what to pray, the spirit cries out, Abba, Father, from within us. And somehow it meets us in our need. And so we just lay our burdens at your feet. We, we, we don't know how to cry out other than 
just looking at the word and saying, you're enough, you've always been enough, you always will be enough, keep being enough, keep sewing us together in family and love in Jesus, and we'll be happy, we'll be fine. So God, have your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.